The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you that the content of that last song is real, that we can talk to you as children to their dad, that we can cry out to you, enter into your presence, clean, forgiven, welcomed, heard, loved. This is a great privilege. We say thank you. You have done it. It is marvelous in our sight and marvelous in yours. That's why you did it. You have made for yourself a people to the praise of your glorious grace, and we want to praise that glorious grace. It is marvelous. Thank you. We say that in here in this room, and we want to also say it out there in the world, consistently with voice and with life. We want to be whole, unified people, not double people. We want to be people who live for you here and live for you out there. And so we pray that this morning you would use this passage before us to help us with that, to grow us, to strengthen us in that resolve. To be a people who say thank you and who testify to your wonder, to your goodness, wherever we are, in the myriad of circumstances in which we find ourselves fun, light, and easy, and sobering and hard both so help us lord and do so this morning with this passage spirit of god would you help us to hear we come from different places here this morning and perhaps some need to hear some piece of this more than others would you help us wherever we are to hear the part that's necessary this morning would you make it all clear would you apply it to us would you build us up and change us if there are some here or who hear this later who, who don't yet know you, call them, please. Call them in. Reach out to them and make the truth clear and open their eyes and let them see you. Draw them in. Pour out love on them in particular ways, even this morning or perhaps later Save and build your church to your honor. That's our, that's our request of you, Father, Son, and Spirit. And we pray in Christ's name. Amen. We turn our attention this morning to Luke chapter 12. Last week, in finishing chapter 11, we considered skin-deep religion. The phrase I use there to kind of capture what that chapter is getting at. Skin-deep religion and problems associated with it topic that Jesus warns us about indirectly as he speaks very difficult, very condemningly to the Pharisees and those like them, those who are concerned with what the outside looks like to the exclusion of the inside. Those who are giving great self-effort or working very hard at cleaning up the outside and, and posturing and presenting themselves as one way but on the inside, not being the same. And God is not pleased with that attitude. He, went, he made us as a whole people, out and in both, a unified people. We can't 
live as one one way and live as somebody else the other way. We are one. We are we are individual people, and he wants all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength devoted to him, given over to him. So he's not pleased with an attempt to live one way on the outside and being different inside. He's not pleased with it, and nor can we be. We aren't satisfied with that either. We, we can't rest there. We can't be content with that, but we have to also realize that we can't be satisfied in, in, a, in a filled and blessed sense because that kind of a living, it actually is, is false, and it separates us from God. And it leaves us apart from him, separate from him, hollow inside. So we miss. We miss God and we miss life. So he's not satisfied with that, nor can we be with skin-deep religion. It's profoundly disappointing to us, and it just leads to, in the end, judgment. That was last week. And that passage ends, that chapter ends with the Pharisees and scribes, those people that he was just laying into, hounding him. As he continues on, hounding him, seeking to trap him so as to get him, to condemn him. And he does continue on. He continues on into this chapter with still, still teaching large crowds. We, this chapter begins with another massive crowd pressing in, kind of on itself. And it creates the context in which he speaks to his disciples. But to get a picture of the context, as we'll read, the crowd is pressing in, pressing in, pressing in. And in the middle of that, Jesus and those who are close to him, including the Pharisees and the scribes who have blood in their eyes. I mean, they are after him. And the disciples, his followers. You've got a crowd that says it's stumbling upon itself as it presses in. And then in the middle, Jesus and angry Pharisees and disciples. That's the context in which Jesus turns first to speak to those who are his. He's, he's speaking, they, they can hear this, and he is going to turn to address other people eventually, but this is first spoken. He's got his disciples in view here. In that context, picture the setting. I'm going to read verses 1 to 12 and then draw two observations from it. Here's the passage. Luke chapter 12, verse 1. In the meantime... When so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not, that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in the dark shall be heard in the light, and what you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body and after that have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he is killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And not one of them is forgotten before God. Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. 
for the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Luke 12, verses 1 to 12. I'm going to draw two observations, and here's the first. Disciples must be on guard against spiritual hypocrisy. Kind of the obvious first point here. Disciples must be on guard against spiritual hypocrisy. Verse 1, Jesus says to his disciples, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Coming out of the last chapter, the Pharisees are obviously, they're all still there. They're, they're following him, they're, they're present. And so he speaks to them warning his disciples about this leaven, which is an idea that comes from the Old Testament, from the, the, the Jewish celebration of Passover, remembering the original Passover and its unleavened bread, every Jewish household would at Passover, celebrating God's deliverance of them, would cleanse out leaven, yeast, which is something that when in, in a batch of dough, you know, obviously spreads to affect or infect, contaminate the whole batch. So it became a symbol of cleansing out something that from, from life, from your, your household, that would otherwise spread and contaminate the whole batch as we celebrate God's deliverance. That's where he gets this idea of leaven that needs to be cleansed out, and in this case, it's hypocrisy, like that of the Pharisees. Like we just saw, skin-deep religion, especially in verses 39 and 40, where the Pharisees are concerned about the outside to the exclusion of the inside. Spiritual hypocrisy, which is a large and constant challenge to the church, to Christians. Why Jesus warns his followers, and he warns them in a sense of beware, as in constantly, regularly, beware, be on guard against. Watch out for and get rid of this. At church and at Bible study and everywhere else that there are people to be impressed, maybe around a Christian office mate or neighbor, or, or maybe somebody who's not a Christian, but you want to impress them with what Christianity looks like. In those situations, what's seen is, wow, what a godly guy. Man, she loves the Lord. Very careful to follow him and obey him and, and sings praise songs all the time. And you get the, the note card posted on the mirror with the Bible verse or the, the saying. But is that true? Is that true of you? For some in the church, for some who profess to be disciples, who are known as Christians, it isn't true. And probably for all of us, it's, it's at various times, it is tempting. We are drawn into presenting one way, but not actually living that in, in the public eye, around other people. Maybe that shows up in a different context other than church. It shows up in private maybe or when other Christians aren't around. Or to catch this particular context, the point being made here, maybe that shows up when the crowd gathers and presses in and you begin to realize what they don't like and what they don't want to hear as well as what they do like and do approve of and do commend and will honor and respect and if their perspectives, if what, if what 
if what they value, if that's what rules your heart, you will soon be dressed in the clothes of the world. Perhaps not on Sunday morning, but throughout the rest of the week. That's the challenge for Christians, for the, for the disciple, warned against by Jesus. From, from the last paragraph here, when the synagogues and rulers and authorities of the world call you up, when they're modern equivalents, when, when your, your office mate who isn't a Christian, when your neighbor, maybe even your family member, your non-believing family member, when your boss, a classmate, teammate, Maybe in this country, and certainly in other countries, when government officials, when those with power over you, power that can hurt you, can at least ostracize you, when they call you out and accuse you of being a religious bigot or a narrow-minded Christian or maybe just a silly Christian, and they laugh at you. Threaten you with some sort of loss or penalty when before those kinds of men and women, people, not in the church, not at Bible study, not in the prayer group, but when out there, will you, do you, acknowledge Jesus or not? Will you, do you, say with your mouth and with your life, I belong to him. He's my Lord. Come back to verses 8 and 9 a little bit later, but for now, notice the challenge. Jesus is calling us to a, to a single-minded unity. So not just being one way at church and one way around the world, but being the same way in both places. Acknowledge me before those kinds of folks too, not just on Sunday morning. That's the point. Beware the leaven of the Pharisees. Beware of hypocrisy. This is a problem for disciples for the church. It seeps in, and if it seeps in, it, it works through the whole batch and ruins us. It grieves the Holy Spirit, which is our ruin. Do you realize that? It grieves the Holy Spirit. It may look like, like success. It may look one way, and, and it, may, it may gain you much acclaim and much status in this community and much acclaim, much status in the other communities. What's the problem? It grieves the Holy Spirit, which is our ruin, because that cuts us off from God. It, it, God steps away from us, individually and corporately, and creates an environment instead where, where sin is, is sown and then grows up, grows up and, and is bred through us. It, it alienates us from God, and it undercuts our witness to the world. If you're, if you're here... I would guess that this is somewhere near the top of the list for reasons people don't like Christians in Christianity. If you're here this morning, you're not a Christian, I would guess that's somewhere near the top of your list, that you have in some way or another at some point seen people who say, I'm with Jesus, and then act a different way, and you say, what is that? It, it raises huge questions about authenticity, about reality. If you say that's Christianity, that's fake. Is it even real for you? It cuts the knees out of our witness in the world. Hypocrisy is a huge problem in the church. And it's also a problem in the world in general. 
So the context here is, is very much one of Jesus speaking to his people. Jesus speaking to disciples, followers of his, and he's going to tell us how to root out such hypocrisy. But before we get to that, we should also understand that this is not just about Christians. If you're not a Christian, this is about you indirectly as well. People of all sorts in all sorts of situations can be found presenting themselves as one thing but actually being something different, which is why in the culture at large, our, the culture's language at large, we have all kinds of phrases like being a genuine person, being an authentic person, being real, or conversely, posing and faking it and being two-faced and hypocritical. We all, the, the culture, the world is familiar with hypocrisy and none of us like it because it always ruins community wherever it comes. It's dishonest and it separates us from people. So before we move on to talk about the solution to this and understanding it is in a Christian context, so he's talking to Christians, but before we do that, we've got to realize this is a human problem, not just a Christian problem. All hypocrisy, all two-faced living, all posing, pretending, performing, shares something in common. And there's lots of different types of hypocrisy, but all of it shares something in common, a problem that actually threatens to enslave all of us. So I'm not just talking to the church, I'm talking to people. Have you ever heard... Maybe an office mate, adopt a different tone of voice and a different posture and a different facial expression when she's talking to the boss at work. Suddenly, she's so agreeable and so positive and so cooperative and so kind and so hypocritical. You sit next to her, that's not her. Why is she acting like that when she's talking to the boss? And why did you act like that when you talked to the boss yesterday? Because, and this is the core of it, this is the thing that all hypocrisy, Christian spiritual hypocrisy, and all hypocrisy shares in common. There is, in that situation in that office, there right there is someone who has power over you. Someone that you feel the need to please or appease or perform for, to gain the approval of, so that that one's power will not be used against you, but will perhaps be used for you, to benefit you, not to hurt you. Maybe it's a formal power, like a boss or a government official, power that can promote you or fire you, or in the case of religious persecution, like they're facing in this context, that, that can officially and legally afflict, persecute, and even kill. But very often it's informal power. It's, it's, it's the kids in the, in the hallway. It's, it's your neighbor. They don't have any official power over you, but they have power to receive you in, welcome you and laugh with you, or set you out, ostracize you and laugh at you. They have the power to accomplish that, and you recognize it. So Jesus is here speaking to the professing Christian tempted towards hypocrisy when we look at the crowds pressing in around and the Pharisees standing right there angry and realizing where this could go. That's, that's the context, but he's speaking to, more broadly, the issue that humanity faces. People living beneath power 
tempted to look at that power and fake who they are. People who tempted to look at that power, be ruled by it, and in the fear of it, in the fear of people in power, the fear of man, to say, I will behave in one certain way, not who I am in fact, but I will behave in a certain way so as to appease you, living in the fear of this other person and power. That's the human problem, the fear of man, fear of mankind. And it inclines us and it draws us, it coerces us to work harder and to work longer than we want to, to speak in ways that aren't true of us. The fear of man, can you see this, is a bondage that holds you and makes you be something other than who you are and even than what you otherwise want to be, but you have to be, or that power will hurt you. It's a bondage that controls. How can we be freed from it? We have to get at that fear, that, that bondage, if we're going to then get at hypocrisy. You see, hypocrisy comes from that. You can't attack hypocrisy directly. You've got to attack what drives hypocrisy, this fear, this bondage. How can we be freed from that? Jesus is about to tell Christians how we can be freed from that. But understand, if you're not a Christian, it's the same way. There's only one way out. There aren't two ways out of this bondage. There's only one. So he's speaking to Christians, but this is the hope for people. A way to replace one fear, fear of man, with another fear. And that gets us to the second point. Here's the second observation. Fear God so as to stand for Jesus without fear. Fear God so as to stand for Jesus without fear. Verse 4, we're going to come to, sits in a context. Don't forget this whole section. Massive growing opposition that just exploded at the end of the last chapter. And realize where we sit. This is the, this is the Gospel of Luke. This is the, the end of Jesus' life. If we were to move ahead and read the book of Acts, which occurs just a couple of months after this, it's not like Acts is a long time later. It's just a couple months later. And in Acts, the opposition that we see growing here becomes full-blown persecution, which becomes murderous. And not just of Jesus, but of his disciples. So the verse that we're reading, verse 4, it's very real. There are some even present who can kill the body who will kill the body. And he says, I tell you, Jesus says, using that introduction that he, that he often uses to express his authority, I tell you. Notice how he moves immediately to fear. This is how we root out fear. I tell you, my friends, do not fear them who can kill the body, but have no further power. That's the point. They have nothing more they can do. Once they've killed the body, they are out of levers to pull. Done. Don't fear them. But instead, one fear replaced with another. 
This is how we root out fear. We should fear. Three times in verse 5, Jesus says, so I'll tell you who you should fear. Fear God, says Jesus. Fear him who has even greater power over you. Who after he has killed has still more power. Authority, actually, which is rightful power. He has proper power. Right power. Power to cast into hell. Which, notice carefully, does not say who will cast into hell. That would be a statement about what certainly does happen. Which isn't exactly the point. Jesus is trying to clarify us what kind of power this is. Not declaring what the outcome will be because he's speaking to a large group of people. This is a kind of power. It's as if he says, he's looking at the crowd here. Look, look at all these people. They, they for sure have power over you. You can feel it in the jostling and in the thousands of people and that you can see it in, in the anger in their faces. They have power for sure. They can take your life or at least your livelihood and your house and your social standing and your good name. If you, if you go along with them, though, they might give you all that stuff, all those things that are good and that you desire for sure. Okay, great. But there is one who has authority that goes beyond anything you see here. Rightful, true power that extends beyond death and an authority that includes even eternal destiny, eternal reward, or eternal condemnation. Fear the one who is the eternal judge of all the earth, who himself is the one with the only rightful authority to determine what happens to each individual after we die. Yes, I tell you, fear that one. The logic is completely clear. Feel the force of it. It makes no sense, Christian, person. It makes no sense to claim to be and to act like a Christian here in this room in church or at the prayer meeting, but then out there fearing all those other folks and what may or may not come from them to you. Seeing their different values and their different goals and you don't want anything to do with submission to Jesus and, and will punish and maybe persecute and maybe kill or conversely may reward and give you job advancements and, and pat you on the back and give you security. To fear them, if, if that's what controls your opinion, you will live a hypocritical life. If that's what controls you, if that's what has you, if that's what you fear, you will live a hypocritical life. And you will not acknowledge him before them. Jesus holds up in front of us. Remember, you will stand before the one who is the judge. And when I am called to testify at that trial. Verses 8 and 9, both sides of the coin. When I'm called to testify in the court of heaven... This is, I tell you, this is the case. I tell you, I will acknowledge the one who acknowledged me, and I will not acknowledge the one. I will deny the one who denied me. We must, we must keep that moment in mind. The heavenly trial of your soul before the eyes of the one to whom we have to give account. Jesus will say either yes, mine, or no, I don't know him. I mean, yeah, he came around church a lot, and he sang beautifully. But I don't know him. He doesn't know me. 
The judge will hear the testimony of Jesus and everything done in secret and everything, everything said outside there, it, hidden to our eyes here, will all be known, will all be seen, and he will make a right judgment. He will deliver a verdict. Fear that one, not the guy who's in line behind you up next. The logic is completely clear. Fear God. But we need to stop right there to check something. How are you hearing this repeated fear God? Do you hear it as a threatening, dreadful God trying to scare you straight? Essentially trying to intimidate you. Stop, stop and ask yourself, is that how I just heard that? Is that what was coming to me? Fear in that sense. There is something very different than that going on here. For sure. We're talking about God as judge and eternal judgment and the word hell, which is real. This is an incredibly serious subject, for sure. So Jesus rightly says in verse 9, I will warn you about who to fear. It is a warning. It's a warning. But it's not meant to be an intimidation. Rather, what's going on here, Jesus calls all of this to mind to remind you of it and invite you to think about it, to meditate on it, and to believe it as the true, ultimate, important end we face. To believe it for the first time, maybe, or maybe once again to believe it. To refresh your belief in it, to renew your belief in it, to, to kind of readjust your grip on it. You know, sometimes you hold on to something for a long time and your hand kind of slides and you kind of got to go grab it again. He brings that up to his people to remind them, you're going to be facing a bunch of people out there and as you feel their hot breath on you, you get the picture. Let me give you another picture. Let me remind you of something and ask you to meditate on it, to, to re-grip to re it or flip it around, to be gripped by it, to be controlled by it. Because in those moments when you are drawn into the fear of people and tempted to live in a different way in front of all of them, what's going on there is that you are disregarding God. You are forgetting what is and what is coming. You are walking in unbelief. You're believing that what they give and what they could take away is what is most important and is what is lasting and is what is real and is what makes for life, but it isn't. Let me remind you. Do not disregard this one, but live gripped by him. Live in the fear of him, controlled by him, governed by him. Jesus puts this in front of us to say, oh, see the great God who is transcendent over all the temporary 
over all the small and passing promises of people. Give careful regard to him. He holds in his hands the key to life, one key that leads to the gate of heaven and one key that leads to the gate of hell. He holds that key. They don't. Give careful regard to him. That is, fear him, not them. He is the sovereign. And seeing his authority and seeing the ultimate end of all humanity and seeing death and judgment of sin, see this also, see this also, and be amazed at it. See this also. Look at verse 4 again. I tell you, my friends, here's how to think about fear. Jesus calls his disciples, you Christian, he calls you friend. His friend. How can that be? If you wind back just one click before, and if you will, tear the covers off of your life, and reveal everything that's hidden, everything that was whispered in secret, and pronounce it out loud in front of everybody, as it already is known before God and as it will be seen on that day. There's no way on earth you're the friend of Jesus. No way on earth you're the friend of Jesus. Right? I'm not asking anybody to raise their hand, but who wants to put their life on the screen here? Their thoughts. The things that you've said, maybe to sympathetic friends, maybe just in your own head. Who wants to put that on the screen? It already is on the screen before God's eyes, and it's going to be on the screen at the judgment. It will all be known. Everything declared in secret will be shouted from the housetops. It's going to be known. How on earth can he call you friend? Your life will be shown clearly and the accuser of your soul will demand justice against you, will demand that the God who is the judge and who is just and righteous will exercise justice against you. What hope is there for you? None except this. And bless God, it's enough. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners. That Jesus Christ came into the world with not a touch of hypocrisy at all, always faithful and true to his Father who sent him in public and in private. In every setting, he was faithful and true. He lived in the perfect fear of the Lord and took on himself your curse. He himself was cast into hell in your place. I don't think Jesus literally went to hell. He was cast into the, the condemnation of hell. The Father turned away from him in your place. He was raised from the grave, from the depths, alive again for you that he can call you friend. Friend. 
You're the friend of God the Son. And then verse 6, still more. What does he say there about how God views you, you friend of Jesus? How God, the one that he just said has authority to cast people into hell. So he just had the word hell there off his lips. I mean, that's a, that's a strong word. We don't even like to say that out loud. I feel a little uncomfortable with me saying it. He just said that. He brought that into the conversation How does Jesus say that that God views you? This is not all the world. He's still talking to his friends. Talking about Christians here. Five sparrows sold for two pennies. They're practically free. They're plentiful and small and cheap and nearly worthless in the eyes of the world, but God sees every single one of them and knows every single one of their nesting habits, their feeding habits, the death of every single meaningless little bird. And he knows every single hair on your head, Christian. Like a mother of a nursing newborn. Maybe you've done this, seen it. Kids sometimes just hang out there, nursing. And mom's looking. And she's not asleep. She's looking at the newborn, looking at the baby while it nurses and nods off, and she counts every freckle and knows every wrinkle and every dent and exactly how many pieces of individual hair are popping out of Junior's little head. It is intimate knowledge. It is personal care. God with you, my friends. That's how he is with you, my friends. Fear not. How the verse ends. Fear not, you are more value than many sparrows. What is Jesus doing here? He's lacing this warning about fearing God and this whole discussion of fear of other people and the call away from the hypocrisy and the call, verses 8 and 9, into faithful acknowledgement of him before people, before other men and women who might be very difficult. He's lacing all of that with a context of intimate care of God for you, love. He knows and cares for the meaningless. And my friends, you are far, far from meaningless. But you are precious in his sight. He watches over you and he numbers your hair and he counts your freckles and he sees you rising up and you're lying down and he loves you. Do not fear. Do not fear. Right there at the end of that verse, in the same verse talking about fearing God, he says, do not fear. Don't fear the threats of the world. they got nothing on you. Don't be influenced and driven and controlled by them. God, your Father, because you're my friend, He's your Father and your great friend too. He has your back so much so that if you move to the end of this, when, if, when you are called before maybe incredibly hostile people, synagogues and rulers in our modern world, maybe it's, maybe it's your powerful neighbor, maybe it's the government authority, Maybe it's somebody far less threatening. When you are called before people to give an account, you will face the fear of them and know that you are not there by yourself, but I am with you. God the Spirit will be with you and will give you the words to say. Don't don't bother thinking about beforehand because he'll be with you in the moment. You don't have to pack it up and carry it with you. He's with you. 
He will give you words to say. He will defend your life. Which doesn't mean you won't die. It means you'll live. The Spirit, God himself, will be with you. He lives in you and will help you and will give you words to say. You, your job, acknowledge Jesus without fear of people fearing God instead. And what if you haven't at this point? What if you've been unfaithful in some setting? What if you've been hypocritical in some setting? What if you, as you analyze yourself, think, eh, it's not me right now. Okay, verse 10 then includes a word of hope to you as you consider past failure. Don't get hung up on the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Please notice that's one subphrase of one verse in the whole large argument. It's not the point. Is it possible? Is it real? Yes. And remember the context. Remember the context. Standing right next to all of them are people who, previous chapter, said, I watch you cast out demons, and I say that's not by the finger of God, the Holy Spirit. I say that's by Satan. I'm blaspheming the Holy Spirit in front of my eyes, spiritual power. I don't want anything to do with that. No. He's talking about Pharisees and those like him who willfully reject evidence of the work of God. Sometimes I talk with people who are really hung up on this and really worried about it. Let me just say, the fact that you're really worried about it is proof it's not you. Nobody does this accidentally. It is very deliberate, very conscious, very determined. That's not what or who I want. I've been around the church. I've seen the power of God at work. Think of Hebrews 6. I've seen that and I do not want it. No. It's very deliberate, very conscious. It's, you haven't slipped into it. But you're probably wondering that because at some point you realize, I have denied Jesus. I have said something wrong against him. That's why there's hope in this verse. Because it says, you, just like Peter, who one famous night said, I don't even know the man. Several times. Remember that? I don't even know the man. Grieved by it. It was forgiven. Christian, have you ever said, I don't even know the man? Forgiven. There's forgiveness. The call to you. If you find yourself having sin, is that good? No, of course it's not good, but turn back. There's forgiveness for it. The call to you. Today then and tomorrow, acknowledge him before people. That's the focus on the call to acknowledge Jesus publicly and the promise of God's help to do so called friends, viewed as precious, and promised help. Lean on him. This is a God to revere, a God to worship, a God to be impressed with and to find hope in and to seek help from. He's a God to fear. He's lovely. Fear him. Don't fear people. Acknowledge him in every setting. This is the one who controls your eternal destiny and has acted to forgive you in Christ. He's made you his friend and he counts you as precious. He is the God who reigns. 
And this is hope for a Christian and the hope of all who become Christians. In the fear of him, there is nothing else to fear. Let me pray. Lord, would you grow in us right fear of you? That is, a right perception of and a right fixation upon you. And in that, let us see the blessedness of what you have done for us in Christ, what you have done for us in Christ, what you have done for us in Christ. Remind us of your presence with us, of your powerful spirit who lives in us and will be with us in the moment of of difficulty, in the moment of trial. Would you grow in your people consistent regard for you, consistent faith. Grow that in us, please. Faith drives all the other Christian virtues. Grow in us faith. Show us who you are for us always. And grow in us faith. Thank you, Father, you are good. Thank you, Son, you are strong. Thank you, Spirit, you are present. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.